Um, I was um, I was at your home, just kind of doing a little CSI work with the wife. We were trying to figure out like which child was here, who was born, how old was this one or that one, and looking back at some old text messages, trying to uh, piece together when I was here. So that's how I know it was the week of three twenty-five nineteen. We found some old text messages uh, that kind of uh, uh, let us know that. So uh, it is a pleasure to be back. And uh, and just to share God's word with you, I am not going to waste any time. I'm going to try to do something different this year. I'm going to try to stay um, uh, brief, um, but but not compromise any content. I'll uh, I'll try to be dense, uh, but brief. And then tonight, knowing that many of you have probably just gotten home from work, and um, I've just gotten off of an airplane a few hours ago, I will. And we have pie uh, waiting on us. I will do my best to um, uh, move. Uh, really efficiently. And because we have so many sessions behind this one, you know, if I if I need to just, you know, kind of uh, close up or press pause on this one of the stories, I have an opportunity to to pick up um, after that. Right. So um, you can uh, you can trust me to do that. And so we're family. Right. And so, you know, at family, you know, family time, if one of the kids is at the table and this is the table and they're doing something and, you know, you want them to stop, you can just kind of kick them under the table. You're the closest one to me. I don't know if you can reach, but uh, I'm open to a kick. All right. There you go. So uh, but I would just in case I get really rolling and we, we hit that 30 to 35 minute mark uh, with one of the brothers. Just it, just kind of let me know. Would you courteously let me know? Uh, I hear that uh, actually your wife just kind of takes off her her hat um, uh, when it's. When it's when it's done, you know, you know, we've uh, you know, we've had enough Holy Ghost, you know, and just kind of uh, just kind of do that. So so I'm I'm (laughs) I was not supposed to share that. All right. Good. Yeah. Uh, Amen. Well, well, let's uh, let's go ahead and pray and we'll get started for tonight. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, you've heard our petitions May we never grow old of declaring our dependency on you. I am totally and completely dependent on you. Yes, I have cobbled together some words on paper or on a computer screen. I've thought through the story. Uh, We've all read it. Many of us in the room have read it before. But we recognize and respect your word as being living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword which means your word, regardless of how many times we've read it, has fresh insight for us. Would you do a work in me tonight and a work in your people um, that are listening? Help us to have a deeper and a richer appreciation for your work through your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Increase um, our appreciation for the simultaneous strength and beauty of your word. Would you also further equip us for the work that you have before us and enable us to become all the more what you require in Scripture, and that is worshipers in spirit and in truth. Um, Lord God, you know all of our needs, the ones that are stated and unstated. Would you turn over stones in our heart or distractions? Would you reveal uh, my sin uh, that I will be swift to repent so that there will be nothing that would interrupt, uh, interrupt our communion? And this we pray in the matchless and holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me in them to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. This is the basic address of the story of what we all know as the prodigal son. Now, as you're on your way to the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, I want to just kind of reintroduce 
the, the grand narrative or the arc of scripture, right? So we've got the fall, we've got the flood, uh, and following the flood, we've got God reestablishing creation through another family. And then out of that family, he begins to build this framework through uh, that leads up to Israel in this framework of the temple. And that becomes a centerpiece of how people should worship and engage with God. And then out of that framework, the Lord begins to teach us some principles that would ultimately point us to his ultimate solution for mankind's broken relationship. And that is in his son, Jesus Christ. So then we see the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's where we are in the arc of scripture. This is God unpacking his solution, saying you first saw it symbolized in the temple. But now I want to show you the much greater temple, the ultimate temple. And that is I want you to have fellowship with me in my son, Jesus Christ. This is now how I'm doing business in creation with humanity. Previously, you would have known me as the God of the Old Testament who seemed to be working exclusively through uh, one particular ethnic group, and that was the Jews. And now through Jesus, there is this mystery that I'm going to unfold and how I want to work through all of humanity. I'm going to work through every nation, nationality and people type. No one is going to be excluded in this master plan. And so as Jesus goes on his teaching campaign, he begins to, through various stories, teach us and tell us how God wants to reach humanity and how he wants to engage with humanity. And so then we arrive at the Gospels and particularly the Gospel of Luke and the number one theme of the central theme of the Gospel of Luke. Does anybody know? We can do this. This is family. Does anybody know? Jesus Christ says, I came to seek and save that which is lost. Was that Luke 19, 11, right? That's the principal theme of the book of Luke. And so what we have in the book of Luke is this very dense series of parables and stories about lost things, right? So before you even get to the story of the prodigal son, you've got um, the story about a lost coin uh, after it, or you got the lost sheep, the lost coin. You have another one uh, uh, about a, a variety of different lost things. And so Jesus wants to tell people how God is in the business of restoring or recovering or capturing or finding or bringing back to himself things that are lost. And I find it quite interesting that right here, compressed together in Jesus's stories, he talks about a lost son, a lost sheep and a lost coin. In other words, no matter what strikes, scratches your itch. If you're a businessman and you're like, man, if I ever lost some of my my collateral in my sheep, I'd be going crazy. And so Jesus speaks a message to the businessman that's in the room because he understands what it means might mean to lose one of his sheep. Maybe if you're a uh, uh, if you're a person who's a banker or a or an accountant or a person who's just really good at being fiscally savvy and, and, and you're a great steward and you talk about a lost coin. So he tells a story about a lost coin to capture that person's heart. If maybe if they're money or fiscally minded. And then for the people that might be family oriented and not so much farming oriented, he turns around and tells a story about a lost son that's being recovered. So no matter who you are and you're in the room, Jesus says, I am going to capture your attention and show you in your particular space how God loves to recover that which is lost. And so in the Bible, when you see Jesus do things like truly, truly, or verily, verily, or in the Old Testament, you see things like holy, 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 this triple and double uh, um, uh, witness or mention is all about saying, I'm double clicking if we were talking about it in our narrative. I'm, I'm clicking on it twice. I want to click and drag. I want to highlight that. I want to hold that. I want to grip that. Right. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's triple clicking on the idea of God is committed to recovering the lost by telling the story of the lost son, a lost sheep and a lost coin. 
God's serious about the lost. So as we look at the story of the lost son or the prodigal son, if we all popularly know him, I've, I retitled this message as a lost cause, a lost cause. Has anybody ever heard the term a lost cause? Yeah, I have too. As a matter of fact, every one of us probably has in our life, whether it be a car or uh, maybe a, a project or maybe even a person, unfortunately, who we would brand as a lost cause. It means that you've done everything that you can and there's nothing else you can do. And it seems like all you can do is just to give up. That's the classic definition of a lost cause. Well, I want to encourage you today that there are no lost causes in God's economy. Everything is redeemable. And so whether you're sitting here today and you're thinking about yourself and some area of your life that you feel like is completely off the rails, or you're thinking about a family member for whose salvation you have been crying out to the Lord for years, and it doesn't seem like anything is happening. As a matter of fact, it seems like they're drifting even further away. There is no lost cause in God's kingdom. That is human vernacular. It is not God's vernacular. And so let's take a look at what might be deemed by all of mankind as a lost cause, but not in the economy of God. As you listen to our, our, during our time today, any of the messages, I want you and your note taking, write down copious, write down, um, if you're a courthouse stenographer and you got that little thing and you can just write down everything and I'm saying, you do that. If you just want to take down a few notes, you do that. But I would just beg you to take down at least three things if you're not a note taker at all. Would you be on the lookout for indications of where God wants to improve your relationship with him through a a richer understanding of the gospel and how it works. The gospel work, right? A vertical relationship. Lord, how are you speaking to me about me and you? Be on the lookout for a second set of truths that directly speak to your relationship with one another and how it is that he wants us to live more richly as a local fellowship or local body or in community with other believers even beyond this local address. And then I want you to be on the lookout for how God wants us to engage with our world where there is bona fide and true and full and complete lostness. Be on the lookout for those three sets of ideas. I may or may not at times mention them overtly. So let's begin to read through the story of the prodigal son. In the first uh, uh, verses of that story, which is verses 11 through 16, hear this. It says, and he said there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and sent him into his, fe- sent him into his field to feed pigs. And as he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, no one gave him anything. Just to back up a couple of things, uh, just a moment, I think there's a couple of things that we should note. Number one, in looking at verses 11 and 12, what happened in the prodigal son's life? There is a life lesson in there for Roderick. There's one in there for James. There's one for John. There's one for everybody in the room. There is a, there is a, there is a life lesson in for all of us because I believe that while I'm not a prodigal per se, I don't believe in this very moment that I am at this great distance from God in my fellowship. But I do believe that all of us are on the spectrum. 
I do believe that somewhere in us, we are, we are teetering. We're somewhere between asking for our inheritance now and fully getting ready to eat some pig food. We're all somewhere on the spectrum of prodigal living, or we're all somewhere, we know someone who is along the spectrum. So I'm hoping that as you hear this message, your first ear is not to try to find out who this applies to that's not in the room, because the people that are actively considering eating pig food, they're sitting in these mob seats today. I want us to think first about us and how every single one of us, starting with me, is somewhere on the prodigal spectrum and to have some tools to recognize when am I starting to drift? Because even if I never become a full-blown prodigal, there are moments in my life, if I could be so honest, when I can feel my fellowship with the Father drifting. And I need to know how I got there. Because how many of us will, 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 will recognize that it happens slowly and subtly, not necessarily through one big massive decision? And so I want to understand this. Lord, what is a diagnostic that I can learn from your word? Well, here's one. I want you to note what the young son asked of the father. Give me my inheritance now. Within the framework of a family where there are two sons and an inheritance is be to be divided, typically, when would an inheritance be distributed? Be distributed. Just one D, E-D. When would an inheritance typically be distributed? When that the father's death. Who said that? You're that man a gold star. Typically distributed at the father's death. So in other words... What the son is saying to the father is, tu estas muerta me, padre. Father, you are dead to me. Right? He's saying, he's saying, dad, I want to live as if you are no longer alive. I want my inheritance now. In other words, the prodigal son, the first step in prodigal living is to begin dying to the savior rather than dying to the self and dying to sin. Remember, that's what Romans calls us to do is to die to self. Jesus said, take up your cross, right, and follow after me and die to yourself if you're really going to be a follower of me, right? And then uh, Paul would later tell us in the book of Romans, he would say that if you really are, are living a robust life for God, you will die to sin. You will reckon the old man is dead. But look at what prodigal living begins with, a death to the Savior, and a death to the father and rather than a death to the self. In other words, we're always dying to something. Whenever we choose one road in life, we are creatures who are, we are, we are, we are not binary. We're very, we're very nuanced. But opportunity costs, people, business people understand this. When you choose one thing, you are not choosing another. And that's just the cost of it. And so great business people know how to choose the things that are not going to be chosen. And they're constantly reprioritizing the right stuff over the wrong stuff or the things that could be an opportunity versus the thing that will be an opportunity. And that's what opportunity cost is. But, but here's what I'm talking about. And I walk with the Lord, whether you own a business or not, you have the business of managing your soul before the Lord. And the opportunity cost is every single day you are dying to something or someone. Is it to you? Is it to yourself? Or are you dying to the Savior? Right. In other words, has the savior become dead to you effectively and functionally? These are coarse words. No one would ever say I am dying to God. We would never say those words. But when you choose something that is antithetical to your relationship with God, you are saying, I'm not going to die to self. I'm going to die to the savior. I'm going to live as if the savior is dead. And that's where prodigal living begins. To explain it a little bit more gently. Understand what the what the younger son asked for was 
his inheritance. His inheritance. It's rightfully his. This is the allure of sin and sinful decision-making processes in many cases, is that it is something that is rightfully ours, but wrongfully timed. It is something that is rightfully ours, but on the wrong terms. You see this? What the, what the prodigal son desires is his to have, just not right now and not like this. I would urge you, all of you, young people, old people, middle-aged people, regardless of how you categorize yourself, so everybody, right? Every single one of us feels with every fiber in our being sometimes a desire for something. And we say, how could this be wrong when it feels so right? And there could be an element of truth. There could be something that you desire that is deeply right, but it is just wrongfully timed and on the wrong terms. But how do we ever know? It's by dying to self rather than dying to the Savior. Rather than trying to hush the voice of the Holy Spirit, hush the voice of our flesh and our desires. So much of what we desire in this life God wants to give either that or something even more satisfactory, but on his terms and on his time. But the beginning of prodigal living, the beginning of prodigal living is when I decide that I have to have it on my time and on my terms. And in that moment, I am living as though the father is dead rather than living with a death to me and myself. Look at verses 13 and 14. Let's get a running start. And he said there was a man who had two sons and the younger said to him, father, forgive or give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country. So the Bible wants you to feel that it was very quickly. Not many days later, he took a long journey away. He gathered not many days later. See all the quantitative language. Not many days later. Quickly, he got all his stuff and he went a long ways away. You know, he absconded from the view of accountability. Why not just move in the hamlet around the corner? Because his brother and other family members could we be constantly appealing to him. Hey, what you doing over here? Why don't you come back? Why go a long way away with all your stuff? Why not take a portion of it and just go a few paces away? No, because when we have decided to die to the Savior rather than die to the self, we want to be as far away from the eyes of accountability as possible. We don't want any scrutiny whatsoever. And so our first point was prodigal living begins with dying to the Savior rather than to the self and sin. Our second point tonight is this is that distance from fellowship deteriorates decision-making quality. Distance from fellowship with the Father deteriorates decision-making quality. What do I mean? He gets a long way away, and then it says he squanders everything. Now, I want you to think about the volume of an inheritance. This was not some $500 savings bond. This was what a father had set aside that was supposed to set these children up. The Bible says to good Hebrew men that a good man leaves an inheritance for his, his children's children. So think about the sheer volume of what he took and he blew it according to the scriptures. That's a terrible decision-making quality. 
But that happens to every single one of us, beginning with me, when there is distance from fellowship. Distance from fellowship with the Father produces deteriorated decision-making quality. Why? The further I get well from the Father, even as a believer, the further I get from the Father, the more I mute the voice of the Holy Spirit. I can't kill the Holy Spirit, but I can press mute. The scriptures call it quenching. Right? I can press mute on the Holy Spirit. Well, when I'm muting the Holy Spirit, what happens? The world becomes noisier. My flesh becomes noisier. My natural thoughts becomes louder and clearer and seem to be more like the truth. You, we are creatures of volume and focus. Whatever is the most vivid, whatever has the most volume is the thing that gets the most focus. You are not ADD. You're just human. Whatever is the most vivid and has the most volume will get the most of your focus, period. And when we mute the voice of the Holy Spirit through distance from fellowship, let's talk real practically. What is distance from fellowship? How does God inhabit his people? Oh, that sounds like a clue. The, the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. A life that is, that is devoid of, of, of active, disciplined praise. A commitment to praise. The Lord inhabits the presence of his people. The Lord says, uh, if you'll uh, flee from the devil and draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. So there's fellowship in just trying to draw near and draw and move away from Satan. The Bible says that the, the word of God is living. So, so and that, that, that the scriptures are God breathed. So to read my Bible is God breathing on me. You see that? So when there is a deficit in praise, Prayer time, which is communion with God, and time spent studying and perusing the pages of his word, this is where I am gradually creating distance between me and the Father. And where there is distance, I am muting the voice of the Holy Spirit. If I'm not muting the voice of the Holy Spirit to make the world's noise louder, I am then minimizing his impact, which makes the world's offer seem greater. What do I mean by minimizing the impact or the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Jesus said that I'll send you the Holy Spirit and his job would be to convict the world of sin. First of all, he says you will encounter the Holy Spirit as believers, even though the world can't. But he's going to come and his job is to convict the world of their sin. And he does it to us. But to also bring to your memory everything that I taught you. Right. And then to also provide a degree of security to let you know that the father is yet with you. And to participate in your prayer life to help you to be able to pray some things that you don't even need no, no need to be prayed about. And then we are called to be filled with the spirit rather than with wine so that we speak to one another in psalms and spiritual songs and then talk to God in thanksgiving. And so distance from fellowship deteriorates decision making quality because distance from fellowship is minimizing the very person that the spirit that the, that the Lord gave to us to keep us in constant communion. And so notice that the prodigal son never loses his distinction as a son. You and I never lose our distinction as a child of God if we are deed in him. No one is saying that the that the prodigal son was somehow unsaved. That's not the analogy that we're making just yet. We're talking about you and I when we begin to drift just a bit. It is a fellowship that is lost. And the world's offer seems even greater. 
If you wondered what this young man squandered his property and his living on, the older brother calls it out at the end of the story. He says, how dare you kill a fatty calf for this guy? And he went out here and bought all them prostitutes. Do you know how many prostitutes could be purchased with a multi-generational inheritance? Now, this is gritty talk, but I do believe that the Bible wants you to get a clear view of how ugly sin is and how deep depravity can be. This isn't just me trying to be some kind of Howard Stern of Branford Bible Chapel. This is the Bible. I'm just just kind of like saying back to you what I already what you and I can see on the page. Look more. Look more deeply. I haven't seen any hands or hats being removed. Either you guys are captivated and not looking at the clock or I still got room. All right. Verse 15. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Now, what's interesting is that the Bible says that the prodigal son went and hired himself out. So he went to a far country. They never tell us where the country is. But this guy owns pigs. That's not a good Jewish guy. Which means that he has gone to a far country. He has drifted to a Gentile region. He is far away both familially and culturally. Right? He's gone to the the Jerusalem version of Vegas. Right? If you got business in Vegas, I don't have anything with you. And if you went to go, you just went through to go to the Hoover Dam or the Grand Canyon. I have nothing against you. Just, Just chill. Don't come up to me afterwards saying that I spoke against Vegas. But I think you know what, ver- what version of Vegas I'm talking about, not the family trip. But he says he hired himself out. He hired himself out. He went under the active contract employment of a person who the Lord told them never to have fellowship with if they were a good, solid Jewish family. So he's ended into like a bond type agreement to the citizens of that country. And then that person sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. This is a picture of the deep desperation and the depths that sin can take us to, or particularly when we drift in our fellowship. I am absolutely certain that the prodigal son, just a handful of verses ago, when he asked for his inheritance, was not, but not going, ooh-wee. I can't wait to eat what pigs eat. That wasn't the game plan. That wasn't the vision. That wasn't what he bragged to his other buddies about when he was getting ready to graduate from carpentry school. That wasn't what he was talking about he was going to go do. He didn't say, hey, guys, I'm going to go out and blow all my money on riotous living. That is not, this is not his dream, But this is what happens when when depraved ideas become more abundant than God's ideal is abandoned. That's the point. The third point here for verses 15 and 16, when depraved, depraved ideas become more abundant, when God's ideal is abandoned. What is the depraved idea to take a job in a region that, you know, God would never call you to fellowship to go and take an occupation. A good Jewish boy has never even been within great proximity of pigs, let alone would be feeding them and caring for them, let alone be thinking about not just eating pigs. Ladies and gentlemen, I eat pigs, but I have never been so low that I wanted to eat what pigs ate. That's even below Rod's standards. 
You understand? This isn't him going into a Chevron and seeing a little bag of chicharrones and say, I want some skins and I know I shouldn't have it because my cholesterol is high and I'm on high blood pressure medicine. No, this is a guy that says, do you have any troughs out back? I'd love to take a sip. It's an ugly picture, is it not? But he said he longed for it. It wasn't a passing or a fleeting idea. He longed for it. He's that desperate. His depravity has become more ideal than God's ideal. And that's what happens the longer our fellowship gets from God. So I don't know if you've ever seen yourself in this state, and I pray that we have never seen ourselves, but maybe you have, and it will help you in your gospel ministry to others. But, man, it's amazing when we gradually drift from our fellowship with God what kinds of things can anchor in our hearts as an okay idea? But can that also help you to extend grace to those who we may not have, but we see someone else out there and we go, oh my goodness, he's an idiot. How could he ever do that? If he's, he or she has drifted in their fellowship, that's exactly how. Because every human being that, dra- that drifts in their fellowship gives voice to depraved ideas. Depraved ideas become more abundant when we have abandoned God's ideal. God's ideal was close familial fellowship with the Father. Sin strips us of our security. The young man has no security blanket. He has no sense of self. It strips us of our identity. He has completely lost this idea of who he is and where he comes from. Sin strips us also of our dignity. You ever look out from behind these eyes and seen uh, 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 a woman of the night or woman or man of the night. I don't know what they call them anymore. I'm trying to be nicer in my language. But a person who sells their body for a living, you ever wonder how a human being could get there? The Bible tells you this gradual drift in fellowship, depraved ideas become more ideal when God's ideal is abandoned. Sin strips us of our dignity. It strips us of our decision-making quality. It strips us of our sense of who we are and our sense of security. It removes all of that. This is what sin does. The Bible, how do we know how we know that sin does that? Jesus told us in other places that Satan comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He is the great pickpocket, bully, and joy carjacker, right? This is what he does. He, he takes from the believer. He brutally abuses the believer. Well, what is his instrument? What is the club that he uses to do it? It is sin. The devil doesn't have anybody actively against the wall giving it to him like this. He uses sin to beat us up and to steal and to take from us. And this is why the prodigal son has been stripped of identity, security, and dignity. I believe this is a cautionary tale for me, but I think it is also a care strategy for my brother. When I see somebody against the ropes, totally robbed of their dignity, their security, and their sense of identity, this is a great opportunity for me to begin praying for them through the lens of the prodigal story. Lord, help them to reach the bottom. Help them to come to the end of themselves so that my brother can get like he is or help me get to to the way the prodigal is here in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's Hired, listen to this language. Don't gloss over this. Don't read too fast. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? And here I am wanting, and here I am, I perish of hunger. Right? 
This, 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 this terrible portrait is exactly the position that sin puts us in. The father's hired servants have a higher level of provision than this. Now, as the son is uh, the prodigal son is getting ready to turn, I want to show you some things just around the anatomy of repentance. But when he came to himself and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here in hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. Verses 17 through 19 reveal to us this things that that repentance grows out of three righteous realizations. Repentance grows out of three righteous realizations. This is a good opportunity for somebody to tell me I'm getting close to my time. So when I finish this point, I can close. We can get pie. But if you don't say anything, I will roll right into the next point. I promise because I'm out of control. (laughs) Repentance grows out of three righteous realizations. And what are they? The son, the prodigal son came to a self-awareness. The self-awareness is this. I am officially living below my father's will. Repentance is impossible if we don't come to the conclusion that where I am now, regardless of how glamour. Now, for the the prodigal son, it was dirty and it was dingy and it was ugly. But we all know that sometimes sin isn't this ugly on the exterior. But there is a realization that is required for any person to have real repentance. And is this I am living below the father's will. That is the first conclusion that the prodigal son came to. We must have not only self-awareness, but also repentance calls us to situational awareness. I am perishing in my current state. He said, my father's servants have more, my father's higher servants have more than enough bread. And here I am perishing from hunger. Does a person really believe that their current state is one of perishing? If you don't believe that the repentance isn't going to be real and is it going to be authentic? The third realization is sin awareness. So you got self-awareness. I'm living below God's will. You got situation awareness. I'm perishing in my present state. You got sin awareness. It is I am separated from what truly satisfies. In other words, he says, "Okay, I have squandered my full inheritance. I got exactly what I signed up for. And that does not satisfy. I am still hungry and I got exactly what I asked for. The Old Testament equivalent is when Israel uh, said they they no longer wanted manna, manna, which fully satisfied. They said, we prefer to have quail. And the Lord said, gotcha. Can I get fresh quail coming right up? Right. And what happened? There was a wind that blew quail into the camp. And it said that they ate quail until it came out of their noses. And then the Lord says, and that's it. That's a wrap. But he gave them exactly what they wanted. He gave them a belly full, a nostril full, apparently, of exactly what they wanted. And so God is, God is okay with giving people a healthy dose of exactly their request to get their inheritance now. And hopefully it'll bring us to a place of repentance when we realize that wanting what you want, quail versus manna, will never fully satisfy. Manna wasn't cute. Manna probably wasn't even delicious. But man, did it satisfy and was it always there on time? But think about it. Manna was just an appetizer to milk and honey. It was never meant to be the entire menu. So it wasn't as if God was trying to starve his people, deprave his people, or have them on some kind of low-carb diet with no protein. 
Manna was more than sufficient for the season that he had them in, but so he was trying to move them to their next season. He wanted them to hand over land that was flowing with milk and honey. The prodigal son's father wanted him to have his full inheritance, but just under his terms and on his time. So I'm going to press pause right there. Um, I just, uh, man, I'd, I'd love to go some more, but I, I want to get pie and I want to be respectful. I want to honor my word and I want to be invited back. <laughs> so we're going to pray. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm so thankful to you for even teaching me fresh manna, fresh appreciation from the story of the prodigal son. Lord God, would you help me and all those who else want to get in on the conversation? Would you help me to be more diligent in recognizing drifts in my fellowship? Would you help me to have a more hearty um, commitment to praise outside of the four walls of, of a Sunday experience? Would you help me and us who want to get in on this blessing, oh God, to have a more robust desire for your word and for spending time in your presence? And Lord God, help me, Lord God, as well as my brothers and sisters who want in on this, to also, Lord God, enjoy your fellowship and constantly die to ourselves in order to keep it and die to my own desires and, re- and die to my sin rather than dying to you, oh God. May my heart, even though my lips would never say it, may my heart never turn toward heaven and said, give it to me now, which is the equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead and that your, your grip on me was loosened. Um, Lord God, I pray for every person in the room who shares in this prayer that we would all enjoy a sweeter and deeper sense of fellowship with you. And I also pray for those in the room who know us and that we're drifting, that they would be our brothers and sisters in Christ and help us to draw closer, that they would pray for us in our current state. I pray, O oh God, for those who are not here, who would have been had they not drifted, those who should be here. Lord God, those who've never darkened the doors of a church, they don't even know that the prodigal son is their perfect pattern of living. Lord God, we pray for them wherever they are on the just the peripheries of our life and that you are now equipping us with fresh motivation to go and share with them the truths of the gospel, that there is no lost cause in God. Uh, Lord God, just be with us in the remainder of our time. And even, Lord God, we hold up uh, our time of fellowship below uh, with the pie and everything. Lord God, would you just bless that and cause our time together to be rich and bless the food as well. And um, this is our earnest prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So if I took any minutes away from the pie, I tried to give it back through praying for the pie.